This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. do this morning is just take a moment to kind of lift our eyes a little bit up from uh, all the stuff that kind of uh, fights for our attention at this time of year, kind of sweep it to one side. It's probably a little bit cliched really when people say Jesus is the reason for the season. Listen, Jesus is the reason for everything and that's the big idea today. He is the reason for everything. He is the start, he is the finish, he is the centrepiece of it all. And if you have a Bible with you or one on your phone or your device there, you might like to turn with me to the book of Revelation which is at the end of your Bible, Revelation chapter 1. We're going to read a few verses together. While you're turning there, let me say that we're rounding out a series that we've been in together over the last few weeks, looking at the I am statements of Jesus. A kind of bunch of, if you like, self-disclosures that he made, where he says stuff like, I am the light of the world, I'm the bread of life, I'm the resurrection and the life. We've been looking at these week by week. These kind of self-disclosures, these self-revelations, they give us a window to ourselves ask the question, answer the question that Jesus asked of his disciples. Who do you say I am? Actually, that's an incredibly important question. It has massive consequences, massive significance. It's a question that Jesus would ask of everyone in this room today. Who do you say I am? I put, I put it to you that it's possible to know about someone, like facts and information, without actually knowing them personally. Knowing about Jesus is great, but knowing Jesus will change the course of your life forever. And actually, our confidence in what Jesus has done, our confidence in all that he has achieved for us, is directly bound to who we understand him to be. And as our knowledge develops concerning who he is, and as our relationships with him grow, so too does our confidence in all that he says he's accomplished for us. And that's what this series is about, taking a closer look at Jesus, because knowing about him in and of itself isn't enough knowing him personally in a relationship. That's ultimately, that's his desire and his invitation to you. That's what will change your life forever. I'm going to read a few verses in Revelation chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. This is what it says. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye is going to see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. And here's the link to where we've been over the last weeks. I am. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, 
the Almighty. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for uh, your goodness. We thank you for the great truth that we've sung this morning. You were, you are, and you will always be. And uh, Lord, we thank you just that we can come into your presence. Thank you that a way has been made possible because of Jesus, that we can come right into the very presence of God. And we ask now for the help of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you come and be our teacher this morning? Would you enlarge the capacity of our hearts and minds that we might engage with all that you want to speak to us and show us? Would you, Holy Spirit, come and do what you do, and that's point us to Jesus. We invite you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The first and the last, the start and the finish, the kickoff and the final whistle, the starting gun and the finishing tape, the beginning and the end. I don't know what you think about this, but I think that's an incredible statement. Alpha and Omega, it's the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. It's like A to Z, start to finish, beginning to end. And what it's saying here is this, Jesus is the beginning. He is the author and creator of all things, and also he is the end, in that all of the promises of God find their yes, there are many their conclusion, their satisfaction, their culmination and conclusion in Jesus Christ. And he himself is going to bring all things revealed and all of history to a climax when he returns for the church, his bride, and draws everything to a complete and glorious conclusion. Alpha and Omega, beginning and end. It's kind of a way of saying, look, it's all about Jesus. He is the centre and the fullness and the fulfilment of it all. The beginning and the end. It's kind of like another way of saying the whole of something. The whole thing finds its explanation, its meaning, its purpose and being in Jesus Christ. It's all about him from first to last, from beginning to end. He is the centre of it all. That's the big idea today. That's why Isaiah can say, Who has done such mighty deeds, summoning each new generation from the beginning of time? It's I, the Lord, the first and the last. I alone am he. Or this is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies, I'm the first and the last and there's no other God. If we read on further in the book of Revelation, we'd have come to this song that gets sung, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty One, the One who always was, who is and who still is to come. The one who always was, right from the beginning. Do you know John in his gospel, speaking of Jesus, he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, he was with God in the beginning. And through Jesus, all things were made. Without Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus is life, and that life is the light, the source to all mankind. So at the very beginning, before anything that is ever was, before creation dawned, before time began, before anything existed, Jesus. I wonder if you've ever considered what God was doing before he made the universe. Have you ever thought about that? What was he doing before the universe was made? Actually, the Bible tells us, Ephesians chapter 1 says this, he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in God's sight. That's how God sees you. If you're a Christian, holy and blameless. We're going to come back to that in a bit. He chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. What was God doing before he created the universe? This verse tells us he was thinking about you and me. It says he chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Just take a moment to think about that. Isn't that amazing? Before anything was made. Before a word was spoken to bring creation into being, before anything that is 
ever was, before the dawn of time, before your parents even met each other, let alone thought of you, before anything that is ever was, before anything existed, God was thinking about you. He chose. He set his heart on a people of his own. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before anything that is ever was, you were chosen by God. We get that idea actually in Romans 8, it uses different words, it talks about God foreknowing us. And there's such a sense of intimacy in the language where it says that God foreknew us. You could almost exchange it for the word love. It's essentially saying that God foreloved us, that he chose us in advance because he was determined to have a people, he wanted to have the very closest and most intimate relationship with us. He loved us, he set his heart on us. And do you know what? Before the foundation of the earth was laid, before anything that is ever was, God set his affection on you. His love for you. His delight in you. Before anything positive or negative has been done, before you've done anything that's good or that's bad, the God of the universe says, I'm going to delight in that guy. I'm going to delight in that girl and in that man and in that woman. I'm going to rejoice over them. I'm going to make a way for salvation for them. I'm going to woo them. I'm going to find them. I'm going to save them. And you need to hear that today. God has set his heart on you. Yeah? God has set his heart on you and you're treasured in his affections. It's like when God speaks to Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Wow, before you even existed, I had a special love, a special desire, a special affection for you. I've got my heart set on you. Yeah, that's what God would say to you today. I've got my heart set on you. That's what the Bible declares to be true. Even before God created the world, he chose a people for himself and he set his heart on you and me. I'll I'll ask the question again. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Wow, it is amazing. I tell you what, people are scrabbling around in this world looking for meaning and looking for significance. Is there anything more meaningful or significant than being known by God? Isn't that incredible? Friends, Jesus was there at the beginning, one with God, and it says, by his word, all things were made. He's at the start, he's at the beginning, he's the creator of it all. Paul, who was one of the earliest church leaders, he wrote a letter to uh, a a church, a a gathered bunch of people in a city called Colossae, and this is actually a famous uh, set of verses, so many of you will be familiar with this, but this just kind of helps us to see what what I'm getting at here. Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So he's saying, Jesus is the ultimate image of God. If you hold up a mirror, this is what God looks like. He is the exact imprint of his nature, it says in Hebrews. A visible expression of God's invisible glory. The firstborn of all creation. Let me interrupt myself again. It's important that we understand what this word means. Firstborn is nothing to do with being born or being created. And it's important we understand that because actually Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse. Okay? They love it. They use it to say that Jesus was created, that he wasn't the creator. And actually that's not true at all. We're going to see that in these coming verses. But actually the Greek word itself is called prototokos. It means supreme. And what we're talking about here is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's got nothing to do with chronology. It's got nothing to do with a timeline of events. It's talking about the supremacy of Jesus. It's It's that he occupies first position. It's like a designation of first uh, rank. It's like, it's talking about inheritance rights and uh, a position of privilege and prominence and preeminence and supremacy. What Paul is saying is this, that Jesus is a visible expression of God's invisible glory and over all of creation, Jesus reigns supreme. 
That's what he's saying. Over all of creation, Jesus reigns supreme. And then it says, for in him all things were created, in Jesus. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So, he is the creator. Okay? He is the creator. He's at the start of it all. He kicks it all off. He's the author of creation. He's before all things. He's the first. He's there at the beginning. And in him, all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning. There it is again. The firstborn from among the dead. The prototokos from the dead. The supreme one. So that in everything, he might have the supremacy. Or some translations say that in everything, he might be preeminent. So friends, Jesus is first. He's the beginning He's the creator. He's right there at the beginning. But Paul goes on to say this in these verses. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus, and through Jesus reconcile, for that word, to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace, spot that word, making peace, through the blood of Jesus shed at the cross. I don't know about you, but that kind of gives us a clue that maybe something went wrong. Maybe, maybe something went wrong because peace is needed and reconciliation is needed. And Paul is saying that Jesus actually is going to provide the means for that to happen. When the world was created, God said it was good. But something's obviously gone wrong. And do you know that's as real and as relevant now as ever? When you see the news when you read the papers, when you look at the stories, even the experiences that we have in our own lives, it provokes something at a gut level within us. Something somewhere went wrong that needs to be put right. When we see suffering all around us, where we see mankind doing terrible things to one another and the onset of death and decay in the world. At a gut level, we know that something's not right. We know that something has gone wrong. We know that we need healing. It's not that God made it bad, He made it good. It's the story of a man, a woman, a garden, and a piece of fruit. And God says, go, have run of the land, take ownership and enjoy it. But please, don't eat the fruit from this one tree. Because if you do, at a fundamental level, it's going to destroy our and damage our relationship. You probably all know the story. The thing is, Adam couldn't resist. He couldn't resist. He was willing to trade happiness for independence. He wanted to become like God. Actually, the Bible says that in Adam all have sinned. He kind of represents us in that way. In Adam, we share in the consequences of his actions. And you can say, well, does, does that really apply to me? I wouldn't have done that if I, if I was in his shoes. I can tell you, if we were in his shoes, we'd have done exactly the same. We'd have done exactly the same. In that way, sickness is our contribution. It's our selfishness. It's us wanting to go our own way, turning from God, setting up our own kingdom. Death and decay in the world. Death and decay in the human heart. That's sin. The problem with sin isn't that it makes you bad, it's that it makes you dead. Our rebellion from God made the world go bad. And it needs healing. It needs a solution. Creation being subject to frustration, the Bible says, in bondage to decay. We need a solution. And the funny thing is, even when you think about the story of Adam and Eve, 
you think, well, is that really true? Actually, it's a powerful explanation for what's gone wrong with the world. And at a gut level, all of us know that there's something gone wrong. At a gut level, we all know that there's something gone wrong. We feel the pain deep down, ultimately, because we know that we're made for a world where sin doesn't have a place and where death doesn't happen. Do you know what? If the sum total of who you are is just a bunch of atoms, if you're just the product of chance and chemicals, if all you are is a bunch of genes looking to perpetuate yourself to the next generation, you wouldn't feel like that. There's something at a fundamental level that's upsetting about death, and it points you to a world where death doesn't exist. That's because God's made us that way. The Bible actually tells us that death is an unwelcome intruder and that we're created for a world where death has been destroyed. We even sang about that this morning. The Christian gospel is that Jesus destroys death. And feeling such pain about the sin in our hearts and about the death and decay in the world, it's indicative of the fact that it shouldn't be there. If all you have, as some people would say, if all you have is the strong eating the weak, if all you have is randomness and pitiless indifference, as Richard Dawkins says, if all there is at the end of it all is nothingness, if all there is is chance and chemicals, I put it to you that you wouldn't feel that at all. You wouldn't even be aware of it. <coughs> the thing is, God, want to, God wants to put it right. Yeah? God wants to put it right. And most of the story of the Bible, actually, and the story of history is God's plan to put things right. The Bible is, if you like, it's the meta-narrative of all of history, isn't it? It's the overarching story under which we should understand and interpret everything that's happened. The Bible is the story of who God is, what God's done, what we've done, and what God's done to save us. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, we read King Solomon posing this question. He says, he's just overseen the building of the temple, and he's just in a process of dedicating it as a house for God, and he poses this question. He says, can it be that God would actually move into our neighbourhood? Why, the cosmos itself isn't large enough to give you breathing room, let alone this temple I've built. And you contrast that with John, who says in his Gospel, actually the word became flesh and moved into our neighbourhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes. The one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out and true from start to finish. Could it be that God would dwell among us? Friends, it's Christmas time, isn't it? And at this time of year, what we're thinking about is, look, the word did indeed become flesh and dwell among us. God himself came to us. Matthew calls him Emmanuel, God with us. And at Christmas time, when we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, I put it to you, and this is pretty obvious, the story is actually bigger than a baby being born in a barn in a small town on the West Bank. It's a bigger story than that. Isaiah says, to, uh, Isaiah says, and we read this, it's very famous at Christmas time, unto us a child is born, a son is given. It says the government will be on his shoulders. And he goes on to call him the Prince of Peace. And he says the increase of the government and the peace and the rule and reign of Jesus Christ will know no end. It's bigger than just a baby being born in a barn somewhere in some remote place with no significance. I want to put it to you that Jesus, Jesus came to be with us, to demonstrate God's love for us. He comes to reveal to us the presence and the power and the grace of God. And listen, his coming to us makes good on God's promise and God's intention to set right what's gone wrong with the world and deal with our sin-sick hearts. God's plan of rescue. If you read uh, the letter to the Galatians in chapter 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. 
So the fullness of time had come. It was the moment the time had fully come. Everything was ready. You get this idea elsewhere in the Bible. It's like at Pentecost. The moment was here. Right at, right at the very moment, just at the right time, the Holy Spirit came in power and fire on the waiting apostles. Or you see it in uh, Mark's Gospel where it says, the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled. It's like right now, 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 now is the moment. It was once said, God comes to us like the sun in the morning, just when it's time. Howard made this point last, last time out. It's good to remember who's running the show. It's good to remember who's orchestrating the timings. It's good to remember whose purpose is being worked out and unfolded. And in this letter to the Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The fullness of time had come. It was the moment. It was fully there. The creator joins his creation. God, who made man, became a man. And Jesus, Paul tells us, laid aside his majesty. He was obedient to God the Father, and he came to earth to rescue us. And so, at Christmas time, as we pause to reflect, what we find is this. The invisible, eternal God, the one who spoke everything into being, actually enters human history, humbles himself, takes on flesh, becomes a man, God incarnate, pleased to dwell with us, came to that which was his own. He came to us. In Jesus we find God coming to us. God showing his love in its fullest and truest form by sending Jesus to come amongst us and ultimately to go on to give his life for us. Ultimately what we're going to find is that love came down to save us. And here's the thing, right? Once we were dead. Once we were blind to the truth of God. Once we were hard in our hearts. Once we were far away from God. But Jesus came to draw us near. To restore us to relationship with God. To bring peace, as we read earlier. To reconcile, as we read earlier. Jesus came to bring dead hearts to life. Friends, Jesus was born so that you and I can be born again. That's the whole point. Jesus was born so that you and I could be born again to reconcile us to God and be the ransom and the rescue that we needed. And Christmas... Like Christmas, Christianity is a gift exchange. Yeah? Do you know that? It's a gift exchange. We give Jesus our sin and he gives us new life. Yes. We give him our sin and he gives us new life. And no matter how many times we say that, it doesn't get old. Jesus gave up riches and took poverty so that we could give up poverty and someday enjoy all the riches of heaven. And do you know what? It's not, it's not just an invitation to a clean slate. It is that. It's a clean slate, it's a fresh start and sins forgiven and guilt and shame erased and hope for life after we die and the position of right standing before God. But you know what, it's also it's an invitation to life right now. It's an invitation to enjoy all the security and the benefits of the kingdom of God right now. An invitation to join a family, to be sons and daughters of God. C.S. Lewis put it like this much more succinctly than I would have done. The son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. What a gift. Yeah? So I'll say that again. The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God. What a gift. What a promise. What a solution to solve our deepest needs and our deepest longings. Do you know, at Christmas time, you and I, we're going to exchange gifts, aren't we, with friends and with family members and so on. But when we get past the need for the next little gadget or the next silly little toy or the next little computer game or the next must-have thing in your life, whatever it might be, when you sort of look beyond the temporary and the toot and the tinsel and you sweep it all to, all to one side, when you get real, friends, there is a gift available of eternal significance and eternal value. Jesus came to give you life 
and life in all of its fullness. And at Christmas time, we must remember having more stuff around us, more stuff to live with. There's no substitute for having more stuff to live for. At Christmas time, we enjoy all the good things, don't we, that God gives us, and we're also going to no doubt laugh at the dodgy music and grown men dressed up as elves and all that kind of stuff, if that's your, if that's your thing. Listen, we want to enjoy the festivities, right, but let's not, let's not get sidetracked. We're not designed to be filled, ultimately, with earthly pleasures. We're designed to be filled with God. And God's plan was this. At great cost, he sent Jesus. And ultimately, Jesus went to the cross. He was punished. He was stricken. He took the blame for all the sin and the suffering. He defeated death made a way possible for healing, made a way possible for restoration, made a way possible for the designer to have his design back. And I wonder, do you ever think about this? Why didn't God just wipe us out and start again? If you just take a moment to think, why didn't God just wipe us out and start again? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that instead he looks to redeem his creation? He looks to rescue and restore, and he does it at great cost to himself. Everything that we would want to avoid is what Jesus chose for himself. God coming into human history, getting his hands bloody, suffering, and dying. Why? Why would he do that? Because he desperately loves us. Because he desperately loves us. I want to do two things before I finish this morning. I want to talk for a minute about peace. It says Jesus came to bring peace. Paul said that in the, in the little uh, passage we read. And then what I want to do is read again the bit from Revelation that we read at the beginning. I just want to talk for a moment about peace. We saw Paul saying that Jesus brings peace at the cross. And Isaiah calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. So God declares peace. Jesus comes to deliver peace. I want to ask you to ask yourself. Do you need to declare or make peace? I just felt to ask that today. Do you need to be a peacemaker in your life? Are you living as peaceably as far as you're able with all? That's a hard question, actually. I want to ask you to take a moment to think about that. Are you doing okay? How are you doing in your relationships? In your family? In the church? I think sometimes we can be in a position where You've been on the receiving end of something and it's derailed you. Something's been done or something's been uh, been said and it destroys a sense of peace within you. And you can almost live in a sense of unspoken conflict with people. (coughs) Maybe if you're honest with yourself, for some, 
That might be the case. I just feel to ask this. Something once was done or something once was said and the relationship's been strained ever since. It's so easy to hold on to events that have happened in the past. It's so easy to hold on to that thing that someone said and hold it against them. It's so easy to think badly or get bitter. And animosity and strife sort of exists because of something that was done or said to you or something that you said or did to someone else. Only you can answer this question. I'm not asking for a show of hands. I just felt to ask it. Are you living as peaceably as you can with all? Or do you need to extend a hand of friendship and a hand of forgiveness? Do you need to be the first one to the table to apologise? Jesus came to restore relationships. He came to restore relationship of us to God, but also us with one another. Can I say this? There's probably nothing more Christ-like you can do than to offer forgiveness to someone. You're never more like Jesus than when you're forgiving someone. And it's a, bit, it's a bit of a tangent from what I was talking about, admittedly, but I just felt I wanted to ask that this morning. I want to ask you to ask yourself that question. Do you need to be the first to the table? Jesus restores us to one another. He also restores us to God. I guess thinking about peace as well, this is kind of the time of year where things aren't all that peaceful generally, are they? Start getting stressed start getting stressful. Maybe you've got things in your life that cause you to be stressed and worried and not feeling at peace. Friends, peace is not being where there's no noise and no trouble and no hard work. Peace is being in the midst of those things and still being calm in your heart. Learning to turn to Jesus, learning to lean on him, realising that when the trials come, he'll carry you. His grace is always enough in the pressure The root of peace is this. Jesus is enough and I trust him. Jesus is enough and I trust him. As we finish, I want to just kind of get back on track for where we were and I want to read again the verses that we read at the beginning in Revelation chapter 1. This is what it says. Grace to you. Grace to you. You know, John says in his gospel that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And from the fullness of Jesus, you and I can all receive grace upon grace. Paul says in Romans 5, those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness can reign in life. Grace to you and peace. Jesus says, my peace I give you. And Paul says that Jesus made the ultimate way for peace between us and God by his sacrifice at the cross. Grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of kings on the earth. Did you, did you spot that when we read that earlier? The ruler of kings on the earth. Elsewhere, John calls him the king of kings and the lord of lords. We live in times of global unrest political upheaval, and yet the message is this, Jesus Christ is the ruler of kings on earth. He's the ruler of presidents, 
and premiers and chiefs and kings. When Jesus rose from the dead, God exalted him to the highest place, giving him a name above every name. And at the name of Jesus, everyone ultimately is going to bow. And at the heart of biblical truth is this. Jesus Christ is alive and he reigns over the kings of the earth. So grace to you, grace to you and peace from him who was and is and is to come, the ruler of the kings on the earth. And I don't know if you spotted this passage. It says, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. We've been freed by his blood. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, if you are joined to God through all that's been accomplished for us in Jesus, the Bible says you've been justified. Do you know what justified? It's, it's more than sins forgiven. It's a whole new relationship with God. It's being declared righteous. Now and forever seen as holy and blameless. That's what we read in that passage in Ephesians. God sees you as holy and blameless. Seen by God as being covered in the righteousness of his Son. As if all that happened to Jesus is credited to us. As if we were hidden in him. All that Christ is being attributable to our account. Tim Keller puts it like this. Through the gospel, we've come to base our identity not on what we've achieved, but what has been achieved for us in Christ. Friends, to be justified means to be holy and blameless in God's sight. No charge to answer, to be at peace with God, that everything that could declare you guilty, everything that could condemn every sinful thought or action or any charge that could be raised has been dealt with and removed, washed away by the blood of Jesus at the cross. Don Carson says the cross is the place where the judge takes the judgment. Those of us who are most mature as Christians are those who keep coming back to the cross as the measure of God's love for us. Friends, justification is that our sins have been counted out to Jesus and his righteousness back out to us, leaving us with no charge to answer. You now belong to God forever. You now belong to God forever. Friends, we're going to be in heaven. We're going to have new bodies. We're going to see God. We're going to reign with Christ. It's certain and it's sure. Of course, we haven't yet experienced it in its fullness, have we? But there's a certain and sure promise of God's intention. It's already been settled that now and for the great final day, if we're believers, if we're joined to Jesus Christ, if we've committed our lives to him, we can have absolute assurance now and for that great final day, the proclamation that will be spoken over us is no charge to answer. Our sins have been washed away by his blood. And you know, we still experience suffering in this life, don't we, and in this world. Still experience the groans of a fallen world. We still face the trials and the complexities of life in a broken world. But yet we should be sustained because of a future hope that we have. Yes. It's a hope because it hasn't happened yet, but it's a hope that's sure and certain. And we can be confident in a God 
who never changes. Confident in a God whose promises always come to pass. Confident in a God who is faithful to the end. Confident in his love for us, which is eternal and steadfast and ultimately was demonstrated by the death of Jesus at the cross and him being raised to life again. Friends, before anything that is ever was, he foreloved us. And despite all that's gone wrong with the world, he's always had a plan for a day when he'll wipe tears from eyes, when hurt and pain will cease, when we're totally transformed into the likeness of Jesus, when we'll see him as he is and be with him forever. Tozer says it like this, we should meet the uncertainties of this world with the certainties of the world to come. Friends, circumstances change. Stuff happens. Happiness comes and goes. But God never changes. God never changes. Let me finish by saying this. Death isn't the end. If death is the end, that's just terribly unjust, isn't it? But the Bible teaches that we'll live forever. And that at God's right hand, when we're with him, there are pleasures evermore. And I don't mean to diminish what you might be going through in your life. I don't mean to diminish the challenge of uh, struggle, suffering, issues that you face. Don't mean to diminish that in any way. But you know, when you take a small amount of suffering, and when you divide it by an eternal amount of time, you can begin to understand how Paul is able to describe our current afflictions as light and momentary compared to what God has for us. Friends, death isn't the end. There's one who can wipe tears from every eye. There's coming a day of restoration for creation and for our bodies. And if you're someone here who longs for a world where there's no sin and no suffering and no pain and no injustice and no more sickness and no more death, can I tell you what you're longing for is the kingdom of God. That's what you're longing for. All that went wrong with the world, the question of suffering, the question of death, it poses an an enormous problem. But in Jesus, there is an enormous solution. Friends, we can be confident in a God who understands because ultimately he suffered for our sake. At Christmas, we're going to remember and give thanks to God for sending his son not just a baby born in a barn, but one who's going to rescue and restore and give us ultimately hope for a time that will come where sickness is no more, when death is totally swallowed up, when the kingdom of God comes in its fullness and we can be with him forever. Friends, this verse even says it here, Jesus is coming back for his bride. He's coming on the clouds. Every eye is going to see him. Every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess him, Lord. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the very beginning and the end. Ultimately, he is the centre of it all. The one who always was, the one who is, and the one who forever will be. Amen. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.